of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, July the 14th, 2023, as we embark together on episode 3,340 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. Of course, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. There's no live streaming on Friday because it's expert counsel. Q&A for the week, and I've got a great lineup for you. Some folks we hear from often, and some, they're newer, and we don't hear from that often. Here we go. we got always lead on a Friday, the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights. Dr. Paul will talk about the road to totalitarianism always being paved with national security and safety. Dan McAdams will talk about how the FBI is working with Ukrainian intelligence to silence voices on social media, because that's what democracies do, is silence the voice of opposition, or even objection, or anybody that's on total line. Everybody knows that's a hallmark of democracy, because that's what the whole thing's about, right? My democracy. Chris Rossini will talk about how globalism is actually an ancient, recycled idea that always fails. Sh- uh, Nicole Sauce We'll talk about how old is too old for canned beef, and what should you do with it if you got some laying around? It's been there a long time. You know, what you store in store, what you eat involves eating, and what we don't end up with three or four or more year old canned beef. Sean Mills will talk about the real risk of grid failures this summer and how dangerous it can be. This pairs well with the episode that I did with him this week on generators. Dr. Bones, old Doc Bones, we'll talk about the risk of malaria with cases popping up in Texas and Florida. What can be done about it? Josh, the renegade butcher, will talk to you about knowing if wild game is safe that you buy from a hunter. Now, that doesn't happen in the United States very often. There's a few niche things that can be done. This is a question that came from over in Europe. As soon as I heard the word wood pigeon in the question, I knew that. Uh, but I would say this is also this pertains to meat that you might be given or offered for free uh, from someone who's a hunter that has surplus as well. And awesome thoughts on this. Uh, John Pugliano will talk about making the decision to roll a conventional 401k into an IRA, what can and cannot be done. And I'll have a little add-on to that one. And then I got, why don't you guys send me an, an email? And you know who you are when you hear this, by the way, dude. And, uh, I delete most of this person's emails, and it's because all of his emails seem to be TikTok videos. And all of these videos say things like, you might like this video, and or this is interesting, and it doesn't say what it is. That is not how to get Jack to evaluate your content, but every once in a while I click on one just to see. This one ended up being a clip, about 50 seconds long, from Joe Rogan, uh, talking about how when he was a kid, he always thought he would grow up to be a complete loser. And how they probably would have pumped him through ADD or ADHD medication had that existed back when he was a kid. And the guy that sent me this video said, you might have something in common here. We do. And I want to talk about it today. Because this is what's being done to our children. And it's been been being done for about 20 years. And I, like Mr. Rogan, can thank God it wasn't being done 30 years ago. Because I promise you they would have doped the shit out of me. 
especially not high school Jack Spirico, grade school, middle school Jack Spirico. I'll tell you the truth, guys. At that age, I was a little freaking weirdo. Honestly, the best thing that ever happened to me was that we moved from Florida to Pennsylvania when I started high school. Because I started with a clean slate and nobody knew me as that weird kid. I'm still a little bit weird, but I, I'm telling you, I'm weirdo. Yeah. You know, because I didn't, well, I'll just save it for my uh, anchor segment today. And then, when I get to my T-Spaz item of the day, don't tune out this time. Consider it another segment, because whether you want the product or not, you might already own a thing that does the thing that I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to tell you how to put money in your pocket with it. Or if you buy one, how to pay for it. Now, it's not a direct cash flow in. It's a reduction and cash flow out. And that's even better in some ways because we don't pay taxes on money that we didn't spend and get to keep. So that's what we got lined up for you guys today. Before we do that, I want to go out with a sponsor of the day for you today. And he's gotten a lot of exposure this week because that is the fact is this is the last day of a special deal. Paul Wheaton has this amazing permaculture bundle. It's 35 bucks for over $500 worth of stuff. The price is going to go up significantly. It ain't going to go up to 500 bucks. It's still going to be a good deal. But the best deal you can get on it expires today. This is the last day to get it. It's awesome. There's a link in the show notes. There'll be a link that goes out in the email, etc., uh, I'll put it out on social media one more time today, etc. But this is it. This is the best deal you're going to see on this, and it's about to go away, poof, like a fart in the wind, and it won't come back, because that's what Paul does. He puts those stupid, cheap deals out, and then they just go away. And Paul's a pretty good marketer, and he knows if you say you're going to do that and you don't do it, then people stop believing you when you say a thing. He doesn't cry wolf, but he does cry the battle cry of the permaculture is so check it out again paul wheaton's amazing permaculture bundle you can find it in the show notes for today's show and uh, we'll go out like i said social media and, and the email a daily email all right with that let's go ahead and drop into the ron paul liberty highlights for the week i'm going to uh, finish by just re-emphasizing a point that a few of us have made for a few years now going on, and it is to be aware of the dangers of having the security uh, being the most important thing ever, being safe. That's not the purpose of government. Government, government can't make us safe. If, if they want to be, it would be like a, like a radical Soviet system. They'll tell you what you can eat and when you can exercise and what you can read. The whole works, but they'll make you safe, and they'll always use that safety, but they use natural national security is being safe and therefore it justifies us to print money, run up debt, draft people, all the horrors that lead to war. And uh, that is, that is a, a problem. Safety is something that it should be the personal responsibility. That doesn't mean that you can't get together voluntarily, but it doesn't mean you should turn it over to the United Nations and obey what the United Nations has to, to make us safe. But safe, safety is something that should be very close to home, and the founders understood this, and I think maybe that was one of the reasons that they gave us the Second Amendment, the ultimate protection against the people who want to come in, you know, and this would be different. Collectivism, collective ownership, collective control, collective rights. And collective rights is a vicious thing that it happens because all you have to do is get a two 
or three or four groups of collectivists together and they become the dictatorship of the majority. And that is not what the liberty, what liberty is all about. And the founders understood that issue very, very clearly. But this is actually, I think, one of the bright spots, which is we're getting a lot more information out of House Oversight and Judiciary Committee on just how deeply the weaponization and corruption of the FBI goes. You know, we know they manipulated the elections. That's a fact, you know, with regard to the Hunter Biden, with regard to the social media. We know they manipulated uh, what we could learn about COVID. Uh, we know now that they're manipulating this. And here's what we're talking about. This is a CNN. This came out yesterday. CNN actually came out yeah, yesterday. New House Judiciary Report claims FBI worked with Ukrainian agency to remove verified social media accounts. Now, that is a very euphemistic headline. If we could rewrite that in English, we would say that the FBI colluded with, U with Ukrainian intelligence to silence American citizens who held incorrect, quote-unquote, views about Biden's policy on Ukraine. And here's why I say that. If we can look at the next clip, this is exactly what they said. This is the CNN article. Now, they... They talk about a flawed effort. No, it was a very successful effort. But here's what they say. The FBI participated in a flawed effort to stop Russian disinformation at the behest of a Ukrainian intelligence agency that instead ensnared authentic American accounts, even a verified Russian-language U.S. State Department account, the House Judiciary Committee alleges. So the Ukrainians were sending the FBI social media accounts, this guy's spreading disinformation, this guy's spreading disinformation, this is Russian disinformation, and the FBI was then sending that to Facebook and Google and other places, and the implication, I think, when you get a letter from the FBI saying, Joe Blow is putting out Russian disinformation, you're going to feel intimidated at his company, and you may act on it. The question is, and I didn't see it answered in this or any other, did the FBI reveal to Meta, to Facebook, to the others, now, this is coming from Ukrainian intelligence, so, but we're just letting you know. That's a big question, but whatever the case, the idea that our FBI is colluding with a foreign intelligence service to silence American citizens, that is chilling. One thing about globalism is it's, it's a very, very old and very, very failed idea. It just It's always been with us in humanity. You can go back to the ancient Greeks you know, where there, it was their idea, it was called Hellenization. They were going to make everything and everyone in the known world Greek. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's just, it can't be done because what you're doing, especially in our world with 7 billion people, is taking 7 billion individuals and trying to put a cookie cutter on top, a one size fits all. And that is, is just the stupidest idea. But they do it, you know, or they try to do it. They don't do it, but they try. We, I mean, we are individuals. We, we are not the same. We're human beings, but we're individual human beings, and we can't be treated the same. We saw with COVID, our health is personal. It is not something that you just create some tonic and just spread it all over the world and see what happens. You know, there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to health. With finance, finances, you can't fix interest rates because prices are determined by two individuals in that moment based on what they value more than something else. You can't just set an interest rate for, for everyone. I mean, they do it, and they turn, in, turn everything upside down. So there is no one size that fits all. Same thing with our empire. You can't go to Iraq 
and turn it into a mini United States with McDonald's everywhere and all our progressive values and everything else. They're going to throw you out. And that's what they did. You know, so this idea, it just never dies, unfortunately. It's just new crops of people try to think they're going to be the ones to do it. But globalism is a old and very failed idea. All right, now that we've heard about the mess that is in the world, let's hear about something a little more practical. Let's say you got some canned beef sitting around, and you take a look at it and go, I, stuff's from, like, right before the COVID started, like, three years old. Should I eat this? Should I toss it? Nicole Sauce. Hello, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Nicole Sauce. Com. I have a question that came in from our live stream this week. And the question is this. Is it safe to eat a three plus plus year old jar of home canned beef? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that a lot. Because a lot of people find the thing in grandma's cellar and or forgot about a jar because they did not manage their pantry as well as they wanted to. And there it is. That jar of three plus plus year old beef. Do I want to let it go to waste or not? Well, here's the thing. How does beef go bad in a home can jar of beef? If you handled it correctly, then it went into the jar sterile. You put it through pressure canning process for the proper amount of time and everything was was killed. It then vacuum sealed the lid so nothing can get in. And if that seal is intact and there is no detectable spoilage, you're probably okay. However, because it's a pressure can thing, of course, knowing that we do not like our friend botulism to get us, just in case there was a mistake in canning, you definitely want to boil that for at least five, maybe ten minutes on its way back out of the jar. Because if one little bacteria woke up, had a party in the oxygen-free, moist environment that is a jar of home canned beef, and it pooped out toxin that could paralyze you, you definitely don't want to consume that toxin. So boiling it is a way that breaks down that toxin into its elements and then you're fine. That being said, when in doubt, throw it out. So let's talk about what does happen with canned food. First of all, the USDA recommendations for how long you can store things or should store things or best before things are their best guess at how long food will stay good. And this is through a variety of ways that people store things, the variety of places that it is, and just because they're covering their butts, they choose a fairly early date, and that date is, for home canned goods, about a year. But things often last longer than that, and you know from commercially canned foods, which have the same sort of parameters, right, derived in the same sort of way, that things do last longer than the best before date, the things that can go wrong in canned food is if you did not can it properly, stuff can grow in there. It becomes very obvious. It smells like a poopy diaper or it's got mold on it. Anything that looks off or smells off, if you open that jar, it's off. And then that means you probably didn't can it right and or the seal broke uh, and you didn't notice it. This is why you should not store your jars with the rings on them. If the seal breaks and the ring is on, it will seal back down sometimes and then you don't know that that seal broke for a period of time. If there's no jar on, what happens is you go get that jar out of your cabinet and the lid goes, pating, ba-doom, 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 and you know, ha, don't eat that. Don't feed it to your animals. The other thing that happens with canned goods, though, 
of any kind and any food that stores for too long is it deteriorates over time in color, flavor, and the nutrition wears out. And this can get in the way of you being able to use your number one detector for if food is spoiled, the sniff test. So if it's looking funky or smelling funky when in doubt, throw it out. Your biggest risks for foodborne pathogens in home canned foods, if it's been handled properly and the seal has stayed intact, is, well, basically nothing. Because there's nothing in the jar to start growing, so then it doesn't start growing. But as it deteriorates, things can happen, and there could be a moment where, you know, the, the, the seal of the lid comes up and it seals back down. You just want to be careful your bacteria are not going to just magically flow in, though, through the sides of that glass. The other thing is, how important is it to you to eat the home canned food? If it's looking bad and looking weird, you don't need to eat it. I know, waste not, want not. You could boil it and feed it to your animals. Here's the deal. No matter what, you're going to be boiling that thing on the way out of the jar, though. You do not feed something unboiled to your animals from a pressure canned thing. They have the same risk of dying a horrible death as you do if you don't accidentally break down that toxin. So hopefully this has not made you afraid of canned food. Here's the deal. Storing your canned food in a 50 to 70 degree area, dark, really does help extend the shelf life. I try to eat mine within two years. That's the rule I've instilled. But I've eaten things longer. Anytime I'm seeing a bunch of discoloration in anything, whether it be something pressure canned like beef or something water bath canned like peaches, I'm just not, I'm not going to make myself eat something that doesn't taste good if I'm not starving. So I usually just put it in the compost or, or do something of that nature. And it's okay to compost your home can pressure can things without boiling it on the way out of the jar. Just don't lick your finger if you touch that stuff. So that's my thoughts on a three-year-old jar of canned beef. If it looks good, I'd probably cook with it. That's me. That's my risk tolerance. You may decide, eh, this is better pig food or chicken food. That's all up to you. If you want to learn more about home canning, though, I do have a webinar on Wednesday, July 19th. If you want to sign up for it, it's pressure canning. That's going to be the topic of that one. It's $95. Or if you use the link that I'm sending to Jack, you can buy the entire seven-part webinar series, the Homestead Starter Pack, which will give you pre-recorded webinars that we've already done, the water bath canning and food preservation webinar, and this pressure canning webinar over at NicoleSauce.com. Use the coupon code BACON to get 200 bucks off of that. That deal is good while we're recording this through July. So that's again Wednesday, July 19th at 5 p.m. Central is when we start that webinar. And that's at NicoleSauce.com. And that is the day before Jack's 15th anniversary. I have a second question in and it's this. How do you give somebody a 15-year anniversary gift if they're a prepper and already have everything they need. Well, I can tell you from the female perspective that many of the men in my life buy the things they want before Christmas and their birthday. And so I feel the pain of this question. And it's even worse in the prepper world where we have a tendency to have an abundance of things against future possibilities. Now, Here's how I like to approach gifts for people that are hard to buy for. I think about like, 
What do they really love? What have they been talking about but not pulling the trigger on for the last year or two? Is there something big we can get them and, and pool community resources? Or is there something that they just really like that doesn't cost money, but it's, you know, a little bit hard to wrangle? So just think about the person you're wanting to buy the gift for or get a gift for. It doesn't have to cost money. Think about what would be really touching. A friend of mine got his future wife one year. Her journal had run out and he noticed it right before Christmas. And he bought her a really nice journal and wrote a really cool introduction about how he'd seen that her journaling was really important to her. And he gave her that gift at Christmas and she cried. So, I mean, gifts like that are really cool. And I know, you know, people like Jack who who inspire people to change their lives and have whole episodes de dedicated to Jack, you jerk stories. People like that don't necessarily need a big fancy Ferrari of a gift. You know, a long email or a short email explaining the story of how you their podcast maybe changed your life and calling them Jack, you jerk. It's a really great way to show a person coming up on their 15 year anniversary how much you appreciate him. So, you know, if you can't think of anything else, at least say, this is how you changed my life. And of course, if you do send a Jack, you're a jerk email, do be sure to CC Nicole at livingfreeintennessee.com because I'd really like to read those stories too. I find them really interesting. Anyway, those are my thoughts on how to buy for somebody who's really hard to buy for. Sometimes it's better just to give them the sentimental gift. Make it a great week. So the, the Jack short answer, Nicole got it all perfect with the safety issues and all. My opinion, though, just bluntly, three-year-old cam each sucks. Unless you really need it, unless you're starving, boil it for protection and feed it to the dog because the texture's going to be butt. That's, that's just my opinion. And so if you're canning things like meat, I think it's important to get on a schedule of using it because we shouldn't get to a point where we have three-year-old canned meat. We should be canning meat and using it. Eat what you store and store what you eat. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about the potential for grid failures and how dangerous this can be, especially this time of year when we are going through an unprecedented multi-week super heat wave. Now, I only added the super because that's what the freaking news is calling it, but it's a pretty serious heat wave. How hot is it? It's so hot that a hobbit threw a ring in my backyard to get rid of it. It's not quite that hot. I will tell you this. Uh, this week, I had to go somewhere. I had my car in the garage. I got in the car, and the thermometer on the car said about 95 degrees. It's shaded in the garage door closed. And that's probably accurate about the temperature inside the garage. I drove about a mile and looked down at it, and it was 107 degrees on my car, which is... I think a very accurate reading of the temperature here. Because you can't trust that number when your car sits in, in, in the sun. Recently I had to get in the truck and it was not in the garage because someone didn't put it there when she was done driving it. And it said it was 130 degrees. Now, I don't think it was 130 degrees. But 107? 107 sucks! And what sucks worse is 107 and health issues in a house with no air conditioning. Just as one example of where this can be a problem. So with that, how close are we to finding ourselves in that problem? Sean Mills. Hey everybody, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead. And today I've got a public safety announcement from my expert counsel segment. 
there's going to be people that need air conditioning this summer. We already know this summer is going to be hot. There's going to be people that need air conditioning that won't get it, and that's going to create some potentially deadly conditions. There's a couple of different things going on here. One of them is you've got a significant amount of deferred maintenance in the power industry, the power generation industry, and that's driven by labor availability. It's driven by people not caring because the power companies are so focused on the bottom line uh, that they've cut raises or bringing new people on at below market wages. And then there's also the scenario where they have parts they need to fix things that they can't get. I won't say where it is, but there's a power plant in the southeastern United States that has two units offline because their operating budget won't pay for water pumps. Well, you can't necessarily create steam if you can't pump water into your unit. And we're talking about, you know, multiple hundred dollars. I'm sorry, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars were spent to build these plants. And a quarter million dollar fix is preventing them from generating electricity. Then you've got the EPA good neighbor clean air rule that went into effect last year. But this is the first summer uh, where we're going to have it, where you've got 25 states who will have to reduce coal and natural gas energy production so that their pollution, quote unquote, doesn't cross state lines. That means that in days where it's very hot and there are significant loads on the grid, there are potentially power plants that will have to throttle down and create rolling brownouts in certain areas so that they don't create too much CO2 emissions that goes over the state line. Because it's going to be a hotter, drier summer than normal, we're going to have less hydro production. At least that's what they're projecting. There's going to be less rain in the reservoirs. Those That rain is going to be held higher up in the watershed. And therefore, there's not going to be as much water flowing through those hydro plants. Because of the dryness, you're going to have less production from the mega solar projects. Why is that? Well, that means that there's going to be more dust and pollen flying through the air that hasn't been knocked down by rain and less rain cleaning the panels off. So just in general, you're going to have less solar production from these mega solar farms. We already know that wind is unreliable. It does great when it's doing great and not when it isn't. So that's not really going to get impacted. That's just going to be the way it is. And then you also have a significant number of older coal-fired power plants that were converted to run off of dual fuel. So they were converted so that they could run off of natural gas or coal. And the plan there was that they would really run off of natural gas because it was so cheap, nearly free in a lot of places. And you would only have to use coal if there was a natural gas problem um, or if there was some sort of issue with one of the natural gas scrubbers. Well, here's the problem. They downstaffed all these big power plants because they thought they'd be running them on natural gas. So what do you not need when you're running a coal plant on natural gas? You don't need a bulldozer uh, or a group of bulldozers out there pushing coal around in the coal yard. You don't need any operators for your coal conveyor and your coal crusher. You don't have to worry about coal dust. You don't have to worry about uh, the particulate uh, management from the coal actually being burnt. There's a whole litany of jobs in a power plant that are required when you're burning coal that aren't required when you're burning gas. Well, those jobs were eliminated. And the idea was, oh, we'll keep one group of operators that knows how to manage the coal side. And we can just bounce them around between our different uh, dual fuel plants as the need comes about for us to run off of coal. Well, 
Then, within the last three years, the price of natural gas has exploded. And I understand it's still cheap, but when you build, when you spend a billion dollars to implement a dual fuel system, you're not taking into account the fact that natural gas is going to triple or quadruple uh, its price at the delivery point. And so what you have is you've got a lot of these plants that have to make the decision between running on coal without actually having the right people on the site to run on coal or to not run at all or to run at a loss. Okay, And of those three options, not running at all seems to be winning out here in the early summer. And I think that will continue to happen. So the good news is about natural gas is that demand is typically lower in the warmer months. So you probably won't see plants that are running on natural gas now turning themselves off instead of running on coal. But you have a significant number of plants in the United States today that are not on because they don't have the staff, they don't have the operators to run the coal side of the plant, and it's too expensive for them to buy the natural gas. And there was a time in this country where people would generate electricity at a loss for a portion of the year, knowing that, okay, we're going to be able to make it up, you know, during the other parts of the year when those input costs go down. But none of the costs have gone down. In the last three years, costs have gone up. Everything has gone up. Everything has stayed up. So a pair of safety glasses for your guy to go out in the field, more expensive now than it was three years ago. The guy wearing the safety glasses, more expensive. If he gets hurt or causes a problem, the fix for that problem or his medical bills uh, that your self-insured company is paying for all cost more. So every single cost input has gone up double digits. And while the cost of energy has also gone up by 15% year over year for the last two years, it's not enough to cover those shortfalls, and it's also not enough to create people to work in these plants that just don't want to go in there and work in those hot, nasty environments. So I'll wrap it up by saying this. You need to get a generator, you need to store fuel, and you need to have at least one room in your house that you can segregate from the rest of the house, put a window unit in, and cool with a generator in the event that you have older people or uh, younger people that are going to be more susceptible to heat injury, or you're a person that works outside. If you're a homesteader, don't rely on grid power this summer to keep you cool because you're going to end up being surprised when you flip that switch and the light doesn't come on. Well, I'm Sean with Hack My Homestead. Sorry for the doom and gloom today, but I thought it was important information to get out to this community. You guys keep getting questions in the jack, and I'll keep getting them answered. See, actually, this is exactly what we try to teach you to prep for. The end of the world, I don't know how much good for how long a generator and 60 gallons of fuel is going to do for you. I really don't. But a massive heat wave amid a government-assisted incompetence on energy companies, it'll do you a lot of good. It'll do you a lot of good. And one thing Sean said that I think is really important, if you're a person that works outside a lot, especially like you, know, you stay home and work outside, I'm going to tell you right now, being able to take breaks and get out of that heat this time of year is incredibly important to your health. And I'll tell you something else, too. If you ever have a heat injury, it's a very serious injury. It really is. Heat exhaustion is serious, and heat stroke is you know can cause death. But once you do it, your, your prevalence to have it happen again goes dramatically up. When I was in airborne school, for instance, we you know wear these Kevlar helmets everywhere we went, and they didn't have covers on them; they were just bare Kevlar helmets. It's part of the whole training regiment. 
but they would write certain things on certain people's helmets um, so that so that the black hats, the airborne instructors, knew what they were dealing with when they were looking at like if you and it was kind of sad for the people that had a bee sting allergy. They'd write a giant BS on it uh, and like chalk. I mean, big like on the where you could see it from from you know 50 feet away very clearly what it was and that was so if that person got stung they immediately knew we need to deal with potential anaphylactic shock here the other thing they would write on the helmets was he and that was heat injury heat he the first two letters of heat they'd write that on there and that way they knew to keep an eye on that person you know fort benning georgia in the summer going through airborne school you might imagine running everywhere you go Always being in you know some level of gear. I mean, you're running in BDUs. You've got helmets on. They're constantly making you drink. They needed to keep an extra eye on those people. And the reason they needed it is because they knew that if that person had ever had that happen before, they were likely to have it happen again. So preventing it the first time prevents it from becoming something that becomes more and more chronic in your life. So always take care of yourself in the heat, but definitely have a plan for this. Sean didn't put it as strongly as I'm about to. If you call yourself a prepper and you have the budget to have at least one window unit and one generator and you don't, you're wrong. You're wrong. Um, and, you know, then add to it as we head in the winter uh, at least the ability to heat one room with backup heat. And like I said when we had Sean on Wednesday, nothing has saved my ass more over the last 15 years doing this show out of all my preps than generators. All right, with that, let's hear about malaria from Dr. Bones. We don't have to worry about malaria. This is America. That only happens in the tropics. Well, not so much. Hi, Joel MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. You know, infectious diseases are a problem in every part of the world, and a common yet deadly example is malaria. You might be surprised to learn that malaria was once a major medical issue in the southern United States. In fact, a 1933 survey found that up to 30% of local populations in the Tennessee River Valley were affected. The disease was also common in World War II war zones in the Pacific. Now, you want to know something almost no one knows? Malaria was such a concern to the U.S. government back then that the CDC which at that time stood for Communicable Disease Center, was established in 1946 primarily to combat it. Now it stands for Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but its original mission was just to deal with malaria in the United States. The CDC and the health agencies of 13 southeastern states instituted the National Malaria Eradication Program in 1947. By the end of 1949, close to 5 million homes were sprayed with pesticide. This had an immediate effect. In 1947, 15,000 new cases of malaria were reported. The next year, it was down to 2,000. By the end of the year after that, malaria was considered eradicated in the United States. This public health miracle happened through the widespread implementation of insecticides, drainage programs, and the installation of door and window screens. In recent weeks, six cases of malaria have been reported in Florida's Sarasota County and one in Cameron County, Texas. They represent the first documented cases of local transmission in 20 years, when eight cases were reported in Palm Beach, Florida. Now, that doesn't mean that Americans don't get malaria abroad. In 2018, close to 1,800 cases of travel-related malaria were identified in returning travelers. 
This is a drop in the bucket compared to the damage done yearly worldwide by malaria. The CDC reports that in 2020, an estimated 241 million cases were diagnosed and 627,000 people died, mostly children, in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, given this fact, it's important for the family medic to know how to identify threats early and take action to prevent outbreaks of any infectious disease. So you might as well know about malaria. So what causes malaria? Malaria is the disease caused by a parasite in the genus Plasmodium. Several types can cause the disease, but Plasmodium falciparum is most likely to cause the severest infections. Malaria is usually transmitted by a bite from a certain species of mosquito known as Anopheles. It carries the parasite. Now, only the females bite, and they must have previously taken a blood meal from an infected person to harbor the parasite. The organism lives in the saliva of the mosquito and is injected in each future victim during a bite. Now, once in a human, the malaria parasite lives in red blood cells, leaving open a number of ways in which the disease can be spread by blood transfusions, needle sharing, organ transplants, or even from mother to fetus. Other than these specific avenues, malaria is not really considered contagious from person to person. It's not airborne like cold, flus, or COVID, and it's not passed along by sexual contact. It's important to recognize the signs and symptoms. Expect to see symptoms begin about 10 days after an infected mosquito bite. In some cases, however, symptoms may be delayed up to a year. This is because Plasmodium falciparum can remain dormant in the liver for a time. You'll only see physical symptoms once it invades the red blood cells. Now, there may be a cycle of inactivity followed by active phases known as relapses. Relapses tend to worsen over time and can be separated by weeks, months, or even years. So your symptoms that you're going to look for are fever and chills, headache, muscle aches, fatigue, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and in the worst cases, confusion and altered mental status. The organism that causes malaria sometimes destroys so many blood cells that you get anemia. In some cases, skin and eyes turn yellow. That's called jaundice. If ignored, organ failure, seizures, coma, and even death may occur. Diagnosis isn't difficult if you happen to have a microscope. The plasmodium parasites actually can be identified in a drop of blood. So why malaria and why now? The conventional wisdom put forth by many experts points to warmer temperatures caused by climate change. Hotter weather and increased rainfall indeed could lead to wider spread of malaria and other tropical diseases. Mosquitoes breed best in the heat as long as there's a water source to lay eggs and are rendered inactive by cold. Now others suggest that the recent cases which seem to be caused by a different type of plasmodium, plasmodium vivax, causes less severe symptoms, and they may not be recognized as signs of malaria by the victim at first, not until they have an actual relapse. Well, despite, by the way, having less severe symptoms, the CDC considers any case of malaria by any organism to be a medical emergency and should be treated immediately. Perhaps the malaria cases in Texas and Florida have been discovered because COVID has raised people's awareness regarding these sort of vague flu-like illnesses. Those who are feeling sick may be more likely to present to their medical provider concerned that they have COVID only to find they have malaria instead, which is probably even worse in most cases. An alternative hypothesis you're not going to hear about is the possibility that immigrants crossing the border, many of whom come from countries where malaria is very common, may be carrying the parasite. If the carriers get bitten by mosquitoes after they arrive in the United States, the now infected mosquitoes can transmit the disease locally. Cases of malaria, if they become more common, might be even more severe in the U.S. than in other places. This is because U.S. citizens really have essentially no immunity to malaria due to lack of exposure. Rapid treatment is very important to nip the infection in the bud. The historical treatment, and the treatment still in areas without 
resistance strains, which include parts of Central America, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, they still treat it with quinine, chloroquine, or alternatively, hydroxychloroquine. How about that? Surprise, surprise. Quinine sulfate, in addition to doxycycline, is an option in cases which were required in areas where resistance to chloroquine is actually very common. And there is indeed a vaccine that has been out recently and may be effective. Now, if you can't help but travel in regions where Anopheles mosquitoes live, you might consider taking medicine that offers protection against plasmodium organisms. Begin the course of treatment a few days before and both during and for a week after your trip. Examples of these medicines include chloroquine, as I mentioned, hydroxychloroquine, adovaquone, doxycycline, mefloquine, primaquine, and tefenoquine. Woo, those are a mouthful. The exact dosing varies depending on the drug. Preventing mosquito bites, that's going to prevent malaria. So you want to use an EPA-approved insect repellent. These include DEET, D-E-E-T, picaridin, IR-3535, oil of lemon eucalyptus, paramenthane diol, PMD, and 2-undecanone. These are all acceptable, by the way, for pregnant women or breastfeeding women. You want to apply the repellents after, not before, applying sunscreen if you're going out. When you're outdoors, wear long sleeve shirts and long pants, preferably treated with 0.5% permethrin. Permethrin is an insecticide that kills or repels insects like mosquitoes and sandflies. Treated clothing, which by the way you can buy commercially, provides protection even after multiple washes. Do not use permethrin products, however, directly on skin. Of course, you want to keep mosquitoes out of the residence that you're in. Air conditioning, window, door screens, that's going to decrease your exposure. Mosquito netting is also available for your bed. You want to choose one that's compact, rectangular, has about 156 holes per square inch, and is long enough to tuck under the mattress. There's also mosquito netting that is actually permethrin treated. A white net actually is helpful because it provides a background that allows you to better see mosquitoes. Now, strategies for children include long sleeves and pants, netting to cover baby carriers, and using EPA-recommended insect repellent. Now, you want to avoid applying repellent to the child's hands, eyes, or mouth, and you want to spray it onto your hands, and then apply it to the child's face. Do not use products that contain oil of lemon eucalyptus or PMD on children that are under three years of age. Likely, you're not going to be able to completely prevent a mosquito bite here and there. If you're bitten, don't scratch the area as it could cause an infected wound. Wash the area with soap and water and then apply an anti-itch or antihistamine ointment or cream as needed. Listen, there's no reason to believe a major outbreak of malaria is going to hit the U.S., but the family medic should know about the disease. Early diagnosis, treatment, and prevention, that's going to help decrease a patient's chance of long-term illness or worse. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I'll just throw in on the on the hydroxychloroquine. One of the reasons I was really well informed about it as a medication itself and its, its safety is that for six months I was deployed into a very remote region of Honduras back when I was in the army. And uh, there was a very high risk of malaria in the area that we were in. And uh, it was quite prevalent among the local population uh, because they had limited access to pharmaceuticals. When I say remote, I mean this place was about as remote as it got. It was remote for Honduras. And... uh, 
we all took uh, hydroxychloroquine. We we took a, a loading dose before we went, as Doc was saying, and we actually took it uh, consistently throughout the entire deployment. Uh, it was handed out single dose in formation uh, once a week. Every Sunday we'd come out for formation. It was a day we didn't work, and they would do a brief us almost coming up for the week, and they'd pass it out, and everybody took it. I saw exactly zero cases of malaria and zero cases of any toxic effect of taking that that amount of hydroxychloroquine. And uh, it was 100% effective and 100% safe. So when, this is why when I was told, oh, hydroxychloroquine is a highly dangerous medication. It should only be taken in a hospital under the supervision of a doctor. I knew it was bullshit. And it was the point where I gave up on t- trusting anything about COVID from the media. I didn't trust much to begin with. But once they said that, then you, 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 know, you, you don't want to get Gelman amnesia, folks. Um, this is why I believe this medication is something that should be stored uh, as part of your preparedness if you can get access to it. Uh, it has a lot of other things going for it, and, and not so much for malaria, but for a lot of other reasons. So does ivermectin. These are both very effective and very inexpensive medications, which, you know, Bones kind of alluded to the vaccine thing and some releasing of mosquitoes and all. And I want to tell you that, that there is there is facts here. A few years ago, actually last year I think it was, or two years ago, one or the other, and this is connected to the Gates Foundation, genetically modified mosquitoes were released in both Texas and Florida uh, to, uh, to, to try to eliminate mosquitoes or reduce mosquitoes. Basically, these mosquitoes would, would create sterile uh, offspring. And uh, so that was done, and then also we have malaria popping up in these two locations. I also do think that they're not necessarily related, but it is far more plausible that it is more likely that people coming into the country legally or illegally from malaria-prone locations are the source of these very few number of outbreaks. The biggest reason I wanted Doc to talk about this today is I think that we live under the assumption in our modern world that malaria is just not a thing that happens in climates like we have in North America, and nothing could be further from the truth. It was a huge problem in our country from the time it was, I'm not even going to say founded, I'm going to say colonized. And before that, like we've known about it since we colonized it. It's actually one of the reasons that uh, slavery in the United States ended up becoming an African slave institution versus just a general slave institution. Because slavery was extremely common in most of the world in the 1600s. Uh, this is something that we have, you know, have intentional amnesia of. We don't want to talk. Uh, slavery is just racist. There were slaves of every walk of life. And there were also something called indentured servants. And honestly, most of the slaves at one time were indentured servants. I won't get into it, but there was a specific case that happened in Virginia. And by the way, the owner was a black man that resulted in creating slavery as a permanent institution in the United States. But the reason they switched over to black people from Africa is they survived the workload and didn't die at the rates that people coming in from Europe or uh, further uh, to uh, to the east did. And one of the main reasons was malaria infections, because they had greater resistance to it, because they had exposure to it, they had co-evolved with it. So that's just something to know, and it's something that if you're going to a place with it, 
don't be afraid to take hydroxychloroquine because it's a hell of a lot safer than malaria is. Moving on, let's uh, talk about getting some game meat from a hunter for sale or maybe as a gift and how to know and evaluate that meat to know that it's safe to eat. Hey there again to Jack and everybody in the Survival Podcast community. It's Josh the Renegade Butcher coming to you again with another answer for the Expert Council. Today I've got a question sent in from R. And R says, Hi Jack, quick question for the Renegade Butcher. When buying game from hunters directly, how can I check that the meat is safe to consume? Full question. I came across a local community of hunters who hunt as a hobby or as pest control uh, contractors. These guys occasionally sell surplus or unneeded game, such as roe deer, rabbit, wood pigeons, etc. All meat comes fresh, same, or next day, sometimes partially processed, more often not. I've never dealt with wild animals as a meat source, and I'm unsure what to look out for to know that the meat I buy is safe for consumption. I'm unsure if carcasses are kept refrigerated, and will be asking that question first. I'm particularly interested in the roe and wild rabbits, could you please advise what to look out for, uh, what checks I could conduct, or suggest any reading resources regarding the topic? P.S. I live outside of the U.S., so no legal aspects are of importance. Thank you very much in advance for your time, and keep up the good work. Have a lovely day from Europe. Kind regards, R. Thank you so much for writing in, R. Well, I'll do the best I can to answer the question for you. I myself have never purchased Wild Game. Uh, that's... Uh, Strictly forbidden here in the United States, you can go hunt for yourself, but you really can't turn around and sell it uh, without jumping through a bunch of hoops and, and legal mumbo-jumbo. So I do know that that is uh, fairly common, though, in, in Europe, that there are guys who will go out and that's what they do. They hunt, and uh, they're able to sell some of that game. Uh, I wish there was a way to do that in the United States as well. Um, it sounds like, though, these guys probably know what they're doing, but definitely do your own research and uh, check up on, on what you're getting. Absolutely, you are right that the first thing you should ask would be how is it handled and if it's refrigerated, particularly if it wasn't killed that day. Also, by not processed, does that mean that they've done nothing to the animal, as in they haven't gutted it, they haven't removed any uh, any of the innards, or does that mean that they've field-dressed it and not gone any farther? Perhaps it's not skinned or it's just not broken all the way down. What do they mean by that? because that can make a big difference. If you're getting animals that have not been field dressed the next day, I would be pretty concerned about that. Um, also, I know you're in Europe, so your climate can vary quite a bit from here. Refrigeration is paramount, especially here in the South, being able to get that carcass chilled quickly. Um, but I'm in Texas, it's hot as can be all the time. If you're in a more Northern climate, especially in cooler times of the year, some folks are able to get by with uh, letting an animal hang out outside. Uh, if you're you're talking it's in the low 40s, you're probably going to be all right. Uh, I still would recommend having that thing field dressed and cleaned out before uh, before you actually get it. I'm not saying that's uh, the end of the world if it's not, but cleanliness is is extremely paramount, and particularly if these things have been shot and any of the gut walls punctured, that can go rancid very quickly, very very quickly. Um, the best thing I can tell you as far as what checks to, to perform uh, will be while you're while you're cleaning the meat, if, if they are fresh and they do come to you um, pretty much whole and you're doing the full processing, skin and gutting, that's actually not bad because you get a better sense of the overall health of the animal. You're going to want to look at uh, not only uh, 
the intestines and the liver for any weird spotting or, or discoloration, but the animal overall for any uh, abnormal coloring, bruisings, and especially any odd smells. Now, if you're not used to processing animals, it's probably going to smell a little bit funky. Um, it, the fact that it, something does smell doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. If it's bad, you're probably going to know. I think most of us at some point in our lives have smelled rotten meat, uh, have smelled something that just smells sick. Trust your, trust your nose and trust your gut. Um, if you are questioning whether something, if it's borderline, if you think it might be okay, but you're just not sure, it just depends on how hungry you are, be sure you cook it very well. Be sure that when you're processing it, <clears throat> you're, keep, you're keeping a clean working environment, clean hands, clean equipment, and be sure to uh, maintain, you know, good food safety and not cross-contaminate while you're doing so. Um, if you, if any of these hunters process their own, it may be worthwhile to you to uh, see if they would give you some pointers or maybe volunteer your time to come and help them process their next deer or something uh, so that you can kind of get... Uh, get some more hands-on experience from someone who's done it before. Uh, I always think that, that is uh, the best way to go. I know I've learned quite a bit more from being able to watch other people work and uh, jump in hands-on with them than uh, just by listening and reading. I do both, but it's uh, it's really hard to uh, to get better training than, than hands-on. So uh, the other thing I wanted to mention while I was considering that um, it sounds like they may be just trying to to use you as a way to get rid of what they have extra which is a good thing however you may end up in a position where you may end up taking some animals that aren't really fit for consumption and that burden is going to fall on you for disposing them um, in, I don't know their situation or what their desires are but they may uh, they may just want to take whatever they have left, give it to a guy, and have it be done. They may not want you to come and cherry pick it and leave them with a bunch of animals to dispose of. So if you're getting free meat, part of that arrangement may be just to take the whole take the whole sack, if that makes sense. So I would reach out to any of your friends or neighbors, if, if you don't have uh, dogs or, or something like that, that are into raw feeding, or that would be. Or perhaps there's a local uh, a zoo or something like that, or... Uh, somewhere that actually has predators that would benefit from raw feeding. Because if you've got some extra rabbits or fowl or even the occasional odd deer leg that's just too torn up, that's not really going to be fit for consumption, or you don't really trust it, those folks would be extra appreciative of that. So finding a good resource for disposal would probably be one of the first things I'd do before I agreed to getting involved with something like that. But to me, it sounds like a great uh, a great opportunity. Um, without being there, without ha you know having eyes on it or whatnot, I can't tell you one way for sure or the other. But it really kind of comes down to common sense. Um, humans have been eating meat for pretty much as long as we've been humans, if not longer, <laughs> at least modern humans. Uh, we have a pretty good sense of what is and isn't healthy. So don't worry about it too much. Don't overthink it. Just mainly look for any signs of major parasite load or meat that's super damaged and be cautious of anything that uh, has had the guts left in for too long or has a punctured gut wall. All right. I hope that uh, you have good luck with that. I hope you get lots of delicious, tasty meat. Wild game meat is some of the best that you can get, some of the healthiest stuff that you could ever find. 
So thank you so much again for writing in R. If you uh, have any more questions, if you want to reach out, you can always find me over at RenegadeButcher.com. Anywhere on social media, look for Renegade Butcher. And uh, we will catch up with you folks later. You guys take care. Keep your knives sharp. Keep your mind sharper. Um, I'm going to say I agree with everything Josh said, but I'm also going to point out that this is probably not as big of a concern as people believe it to be. And so I'm more concerned with the processing of the, the game because some game, if improperly processed, will have off flavors in it, and then somebody that doesn't know what flavor is will call it a gamey taste. It's not a gamey taste. It's shitty processing taste. Gamey is not a flavor. There are no gamey taste buds in your mouth. Right? That's there's not a not a sixth taste, but it's gamey. Uh, but improperly processed meat can have an off taste to it. I don't think you're gonna ever eat meat that's not safe to eat. Because your nose, your eyes, and your fingers won't let you. When meat starts to go off, it becomes immediately obvious to what's going on. And a lot of things that we worry about today is because we have such a privileged society in that you know we are able to eat meat that is slaughtered and immediately cooled down at all times. It goes through all this processing and inspection and everything. And in some ways, it's a lot less safe than it used to be. And in some ways, it's a lot more safe than it used to be. But for most of human existence, the idea that you could immediately refrigerate an animal that you, 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 you killed, whether it was livestock or game, is just re- preposterously ridiculous. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of societies developed the habit of doing most of their hunting in the fall, winter. Uh, they knew also that it would allow for animals to reproduce in the spring. They knew over the summer it was more difficult to deal with. Uh, they would still kill animals, but they would do less of their intensive hunting, and they came up with preservation techniques. So don't worry about this too much. I, I liken it to like people worried about how old, you know, when can you eat an egg? If it looks good and it doesn't stink, it's safe. That's, that's, that's as simple as I can make it. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about converting a 401k that's a conventional 401 into a Roth IRA. Well, hello, TSP. Today we have a financial question that's a pretty simple one in terms of a Roth conversion, but the answer is complicated. So here we go. Bruce is asking, how much or is there a limit on partially rolling over a 401k to my Roth IRA? Bruce goes on to say that he's curious if he should start rolling some of his 401k into a Roth IRA and pay the taxes on it now instead of later on when he retires. He's currently 63, and although at some point he plans to slow down some, he wants to continue to work and consult and doesn't plan to completely retire. So, Bruce, a simple answer on the Roth conversion part of your question is that there are currently no limits to how many Roth conversions you can do, nor are there any current limits on the amount that you can do in a Roth conversion. So that's the simple answer to your question, but here's where it gets complicated, and specifically to your 401k plan. What everybody needs to know about 401ks is that there is a big difference between what is legally allowed and what is actually permissible within your own 401k. The rules for 401ks are actually quite broad, but the problem is is that most companies have a very narrow interpretation of them So it's not that the government rules that regulate 401ks are that restrictive. It's generally just that companies are real stingy in what they allow people to do within a 401k. 
So whenever it comes to specific 401k questions, you always have to go back to your plan administrator and ask them what is actually allowed or not allowed within the plan. And so in your case, I don't know if your plan would allow you to make a Roth conversion from your 401k. What would probably be required is that you first roll it over to an IRA and then from there convert it into a Roth IRA. However, again, unless you plan to quit, you mentioned that you're not going to retire yet, uh, unless you terminate employment with your current employer, most 401k plans will not let you roll money out of the 401k as long as you're still employed. Now, again, that's not all 401ks because there is something called an in-service rollover. And especially at your age, that may be something that your plan allows. But again, you have to go back and ask your 401k administrator if they allow that. So the key phrase there would be either in-service rollover or in-service transfer. Now, to the overall question about should you be thinking about doing this, well, it really comes down to a lot of things. You know, if you were asking the question and you were 33 years old instead of 63 years old, without much hesitation, I would tell you, It's a great idea because any money that's held within a Roth IRA is tax-free versus tax-deferred. So as long as you have a number of years for the money to grow inside of that Roth, in my opinion, it's almost always better to pay the taxes up front and then have that long investment horizon where the money is growing tax-free in perpetuity. Well, in perpetuity until you die. And that comes back to your case where you're not 33, you're 63. So from a practical actuarial standpoint, you just don't have the time that someone 30 years younger than you does. But you still you know, could live well into your 90s, and so it still may make sense. And there's some other factors why it could make sense as well, and that's because, you know, you mentioned you don't plan on retiring. I don't know what type of beneficiaries you have, but the other advantage to a Roth over an IRA is that a Roth is not required to take required minimum distributions. So again, that may be something appealing to you, but the big question as to whether or not you should start making this conversion comes down to taxes. Now, I'm just going to make an assumption here that you're going to be in at least a slightly lower tax bracket once you slow down or go into partial retirement or, you know, work on consulting. So if that's the case, then you're probably better waiting until that point to start making these conversions into the Roth. Something else to consider, and this may be something you want to do sooner rather than later, depending upon how you're going to become a consultant, if you do that in such a manner by setting up a single-member LLC or by being a sole proprietor, then you could also qualify to open up your own individual 401k. And if you do that at a discount broker like Charles Schwab, It's extremely simple to set up. There's no annual administration fees. There are no minimum balances. There are no transaction fees as long as you're investing in normal, you know, stocks and ETFs and such. So while I'm not a huge fan of corporate 401ks, I'm a gigantic proponent of individual 401ks. They're also sometimes called solo 401ks. And if you were to retire from your current position and start up your own consulting firm with an individual 401k, you could take your entire former employer's 401k and easily transfer that over into your individual 401k. 
depending upon how that's set up, you could also have a Roth version of that 401k. And this also goes back to your original question where you mentioned, can you roll your company's 401k over into your Roth IRA if you want to move money into some type of a Roth vehicle, but your company doesn't allow those in-service rollovers that I previously talked about? A way you could get around that is, is that if your company offers a Roth 401k, then you most likely would be able to convert some or all of your traditional 401k into that Roth 401k. And you do that all within the company's plan. Uh, we're starting to get complicated and get way down in the weeds here. Bruce, if you want to get in touch with me directly, I'd be happy to give you some more specific answers to your particular situation. Bottom line, though, is I really admire you for wanting to continue to work. So many people in our society want to retire right away. But I'm a huge believer in instead of looking forward to retirement, I'd encourage people to find something that you love to do and can earn an income from it and then do it for the rest of your life. Well, hey, looking forward to celebrating the TSP 15th anniversary. Thanks for all your questions. This is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be a loser because I couldn't really? concentrate in school. I, could, I didn't care. I could, I could not pay attention. I was just, and I guarantee that if I had different parents and maybe it was a different time, in history, I would have gotten on some sort of ADHD medication. Mm. They would have said, this kid's fucked. Like, in order for him to be a productive member of society and graduate college and all that, you're, we're going to need to put him on some medication so he can pay attention in school. I guarantee. Because I couldn't. Wow. I did not give a fuck what they were talking about. And so I thought that I was going to be a loser. I was like, I'm just, I can't work. I can't, I just can't focus. I owe all of it to this realization that it wasn't that... I didn't have the ability to focus. It's just that I am fiercely opposed to focusing on something I don't give a shit about. And But when it's something I do give a shit about, I am fucking all in, and I become obsessed. Joe Rogan and I may not be uh, equivalent as podcasters. He's much bigger than I'll ever be. Joe Rogan and I on this issue are 100% aligned. I could not have said that in a way that would be more accurate about me for myself especially the very last part i am opposed dramatically opposed to being forced to pay attention to something that i just don't give a shit about but if you show me something i care about i will become an expert on it in a couple weeks compared to some people who've been you know dicking around with it for years how is that possible? If there's something wrong with me or something wrong with people like Joe Rogan or something wrong with all of the people like us, and there's millions of us, then how can we be so damn good at what we want to do if there's something wrong with us? And the answer is there's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with the kid that just doesn't seem like he doesn't want to do his work. Okay? There isn't. As long as he's doing something. And this is the challenge as a parent, is that just because the kid's effing lazy or because the kid's not sufficiently motivated. And this is another reason. I am such a huge advocate of homeschooling. There's the old cartoon, and I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, They have like the monkey and the elephant and the fish in a bowl, and all of them are supposed to learn how to climb a tree. Well, the monkey's going to be good at it, the elephant's going to knock the tree over, and the fish is going to die. 
But this is the education system we've created. Then we go, gee, I can't understand why there's a problem with it. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what was this education designed to do in the first place? It wasn't designed to educate a free and independent thinking people ever. And it wasn't even designed for the reality that we exist in in 2023. It was designed in the 16th, 17th, and 1800s combined. It is Prussian, and the model that is here now did come into the United States in the late 1800s. But it was designed by industrialists to create people smart enough to run the machines and not smart enough to ask any questions. That's what it's designed for. It's designed to create obedient workers, obedient citizens. It's designed to create taxpayers, productive and unproductive. It doesn't matter as long as the programming goes in. They don't really give a shit if little Johnny learns trigonometry. They just care that he sits in his chair and he learns to obey. That's the system we're in. And I always, you know, I think one of the things that made me a little bit different in, as a kid than Joe. I agree with the result 100%. I wasn't the same as in I thought I was going to grow up and be a loser. I did know I was different than other people. And I think part of it was I identified very quickly what I think Joe eventually realized. And that was I'm really smart and I can do anything I want to do and I just don't want to do that. And instead of feeling like I was going to grow up and be a loser, I felt like I'll grow up and I'll be really great at whatever it is I want to do. And screw this system. So I gamed it. And I, I really got into that mode by the time I was in high school. By the time I was in high school, I'd figured it out. I've talked about some of the antics I pulled, like you know, not doing a term paper and knowing I would still get an A final average in a science class because I just didn't want to do the term paper. Like just doing the math and going, I'm going to get A's on all your tests and shit. I'll get a C in one, one quarter and I'll get three A's and that'll be an A in the end. It'll be a 4-0 and I don't care. I'm not going to do this because it's not worth my time. That kind of attitude, I think, is what gave me the edge. But I'm going to tell you something else about that. I think if I had been in high school in 2000, instead of, like, graduated in 2000, instead of graduated in 90, just 10 years separated me from having pills shoved down my throat. I really do. Now, I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if you could have ever gotten me to actually take them. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I guarantee you that would have been the solution. Like many people that are like this, if you, you know, and I'm, I'm not big on self-diagnosis, but I also know that when everything lines up, it probably is true. A condition that they now call just a, a form of autism, but previously was called Asperger's. That's me, especially as a kid. I had to learn how to adapt to it. I still adapt to it. People don't understand how. Like, you can't possibly be socially awkward, Jack. Look at what you do. And I've seen you, I've seen you talk to people and you look them right in the eye. No, I don't look. I look right above your freaking eyebrows. I don't like eye contact with people that I'm not comfortable and close with. I'll do it once I'm comfortable with a person, but when I meet a person, and I don't like you or nothing, I just don't do it. And if you know I'm doing it, you might be able to figure it out. But when you don't know it, it works perfect. It's an adaptation measure, and I developed these adaptation measures. Well, what happens when you put somebody on a drug that compensates for the thing they need to figure out how to adapt to? They don't ever adapt. They become medicated and obedient, but they don't ever adapt. You know, I can look back at my childhood, and I'm talking my teens here, high school years, and I can think about how much bullshit we're, we're, we're cramming down people's throat with, all oh, the kids just can't focus or whatever. You know, when I was a kid, for about six weeks out of the year, in archery season, 
every single time I could get away, I climbed up on it in a tree in a little platform. I probably couldn't even fit on today without falling out of it. No chairs back then. Just a little climbing tree stand you stood on. It stood there completely motionless and quiet for four to six hours waiting for the opportunity to maybe shoot a deer with a bow and arrow. Now, how can a person who just has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, whatever the, that means, possibly sit in a tiny tree stand for six hours focused on one thing? Because you don't have a disorder. You don't have a disorder. You just don't care about certain things. I don't care about advanced trigonometry. I don't care about French literature. And I'm never going to. And I am proof that you don't have to. I'm proof you don't have to go to college. I'm proof. And there's, I'm not special. There's millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world just like me. Just as successful. More so. No degrees. And the system hates us. We represent... Not a square peg you're trying to cram into a round hole. You got a bunch of holes. You can always saw the corners off the square pegs and get them in the round holes. We're not pegs. We will not be used as pegs. We do not care. And we are defiant. We are defiant to this as children. And you guys out there may have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews that are young Jack Spiracles. Do not medicate them. And understand, you will never enforce your will on them to care about something they don't care about. I'm, I'm going to say this again. You will never do it. You will never make them care. And you are literally damaging their souls when you try. Because instead of being me, they may be more like Joe and feel that they're losers. And this just might have something to do with the teen suicide rate in our country. The way you deal with a kid like this is you get them away from a system that is repugnant to them. You give them the opportunity for self-directed learning. You do hold them accountable to learning, but you don't necessarily hold them accountable to what they're learning. Anything you want, you want to learn about will teach you about other things. If you learn how to cook, you also learn about science. There's so much science in cooking, just as an example. And that's something I like. Maybe your kid doesn't. It doesn't matter. If a kid needs to learn how to write, have them write about something that they're interested in. They just might do it. It's not simple. It's not easy. It takes work to deal with a kid like me, or like I was. But the good news is, you don't really have to do as much as you think you do. I'm serious. This idea that, well, they'll just be a train wreck in the future. The only thing you need to instill in a young person is a work ethic and let them do what they want with it. Have the respect for another human being to realize you don't get to make decisions about the long-term life of your children. You don't. They don't belong to you. They are a free and independent being that you are privileged to get to care for during their youth when they need you to. But in the end, the real decisions about their life forever, they will eventually walk out the door. And you can yell, you can scream, you can demand, you can cut them off of some kind of stipend you have them on. You can say, I won't pay for your school. Whatever you want to do. In the end, they will choose to do what they want to do. And you cannot change it. You will never change it. And you should not even try. Now, I'm not talking about self-destructive behaviors here like, you know, substance abuse problems and stuff like that. That's a different ball of wax. 
as long as they're progressing towards something, you don't get any say on what it is. At all. Because you're not them. You had your chance. I love parents when I talk like this. They're like, I just want them to have the opportunities I didn't. Good, then get out of their way. Because you don't mean the opportunities you didn't have. You mean the opportunities you want for them. You want to live vicariously through your kids. You ain't dead yet. Go back and do the shit you wished you did and leave your children to make their own decisions with your guidance, your support, and your love. I turned out all right, and I had none of that. I didn't have guidance. I didn't have support. I didn't have love. I come from a destroyed train wreck of a nut job of a family. And I still turned into what I turned into. If you have a kid like me, consider yourself blessed. It will be a blessing that will try your very soul. But think of what a person with that attitude, that viewpoint, that level of adaptability would do with guidance, support, and love. Rather than Ritalin or Adderall or whatever the hell poison that we're putting in our children today without being confined to a room for eight hours a day and told to listen to the bell and act like a freaking dog and salivate when it goes off. What might that bring us? What might 20 million children over the next few years brought up that way bring us? We need people to do things that currently are thought to be impossible. Those kids will turn into the adults that are the ones that do a lot of it. If we'll allow them to, instead of poisoning them, get them to eat right, get them to have a work ethic, and let them self-directed learn. You'll be shocked. You'll be shocked at their ability to learn if you empower it versus try to control it. Just my thoughts. Anyway, as we wrap up today, I want to share with you uh, item of the day today. It's one I brought around before. But I realize in some of the conversations I've had in the past couple of weeks that there's probably a lot of people that don't realize they could benefit from it. It's the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder. There's better grinders. I just can't bring myself to buy a better one just yet. And by better, I mean, you know, like one horsepower, big giant, carnivore-style grinders. They cost five, six, seven hundred bucks. This thing costs about $160, and it is a hoss at that price point. It is a great value. I've had mine since 2017, right? So it's at six years, and it still runs like a champ, just beautifully. Uh, so if you don't want to spend, you know, uh, a down payment on a kidney transplant on a grinder, this is the grinder for you. And check it out and consider adding it. And, and one of the things I really like about this grinder is it comes with uh, three uh, blades, so keeping a sharp blade is important, having multiple blades. And blades are not cheap for these grinders. So that extra, those extra two blades, most grinders only come with one. It also comes with a number of different size plates and stuff like that. Um, and some other accessories that I don't really see huge value. And you can read my write-up for more on that. But I wanted to talk to you about this from a couple standpoints. One, you already have a grinder, so you don't need one. Great. Then what I'm about to say is cool. Uh, number two, you don't think... A grinder applies to you very much because you don't raise livestock or hunt. And I can see where people would think that way. But I want to talk to you about a different approach to this. If you're buying your meat from the meat market, the butcher, the, the, uh, the store, what have you, 
you're probably spending, unless you're already doing what I'm about to say, you're probably spending more than you need to. You know, you can go out and you can get, just an example, like a whole beef chuck, and you can pull a few Denver steaks out of that, and you can pull a couple chuck eyes out of that. I mean big, thick chuck eyes. You can take some of it still as a roast, and you can chop up the rest of it into like stew meat or whatever. But whatever trimmings you have, you throw that stuff in the freezer for about 20 minutes to an hour till it's partly frozen, and you put that through a grinder, and you've got some of the best ground meat you'll ever get your hands on. And in the end, when you look at all the meat you can make out of a single chuck, it's a fraction of the cost of buying it separately, and it's not hard to do. On that note, the, well, something got me thinking that way, and because it's just something we do anyway, but something got me thinking that way for putting it out on the air is I found this dude on TikTok that calls himself Meat Dad. This guy was a butcher for like 20-something years. And his whole TikTok is dedicated to this concept. He shows all different cuts of meat and what can be done with them. And all his videos are two minutes long, and there's enough information in there for you to be able to emulate it and do it too. So a, a, a grinder like this... If you start using it this way, within a few months, will pay for itself. There's no way taking that approach can't save you a you know 150 bucks over three months. If you're like me and you eat meat all the time, it could probably pay for itself in a month. So whether you get this grinder or you have a different grinder, read the write-up today and check out Meat Dad again. Meat Dad on TikTok. I'm not a huge TikTok fan, but there's some people on there with some really creative stuff. And his, again, it's not even creative. I will tell you that uh, he uses colorful language just like I do, and probably more often since his videos are only two minutes long, so it seems like it's more often. Here's what I like about him, though. Somebody asked him, why are you dropping F-bombs and stuff? He says, you know what, because I'm just bullshitting with you guys. I don't want to be on here talking like some kind of you know, person that's got a script and everything, and this is that way, and this is this way, and like it might as well, you might as well use a narration then or something. He's like, I want to talk to you just like I would talk to you if you were sitting next to me and I was showing you how to do this. I like people like that. I have a word for them. Genuine. You know, in my segment that I just did about kids that have supposed ADHD or social anxiety or whatever people want to label it as, you know what those people are? They're genuine. And they're not willing to conform to what people call normal. Because normal's not normal and they know it. And they're so genuine they do not want to conform. That's this dude. I think you'll like him. Again, his name's Meat Dad. You can find him on TikTok. Search for it. Or if you read my write-up, I have a link to his profile over there. And I definitely think he's worth just Just check out a little bit. Just get an idea of it. And again, this grinder, man... It's a great grinder. It's called the STX 3000 Turbo Force Meat Grinder. Uh, there's a write-up on the website. It'll be just under today's episode. There'll be a link to it in today's episode as well. Uh, definitely check it out if you don't have a grinder yet. If you've not ever considered getting a grinder, again, because, well, I buy all my meat, that's actually a bigger reason. Because now we're talking about how much money you're spending versus how much money you could not be spending and eating even better. A lot of the stuff that I do, raising my own food doing my own meat cutting, etc., is so I can eat the best quality for average quality price. That's the approach I take. I highly advise that. And remember, whether it's today's item of the day, any item of the day, or anything you're going to buy online, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what you eventually buy. Hope you guys had a great week with us here on the podcast. Got another one coming up for you next week. 
and I will see you on Monday. And we will be on a live feed on Monday. Remember, you can always find the next upcoming live stream at tspclive.com. With that, everybody have a great weekend. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.